On this episode of Bright Future, I talk about the touchy subject of D.C. statehood and how the law is structured in our nation's capital. This is a weekly political podcast that follows current events and looks to how we may do better so that there may be a brighter future. I'm your host, Samuel Adams, but please call me Sam. And without further ado, let's begin this week's episode, which I have titled Semi-Armor Piercing. So there I am, scrolling through the White House briefing room, thinking that there's no major news this week. There's the ongoing issue, no new major news this week. There's the ongoing issue with the Ohio train crash. There's a more recent development over concerns surrounding water safety there. There's also more statements and such about supporting Ukraine, but I talked about both of those things in the past two weeks. I want something new to sink my teeth into. You mentioned the SAP that the administration put out on February 6th, but it's not a broad statement about D.C. statehood. It specifically says that the administration opposes the resolution that would dismantle the crime bill. So when was this policy reversed, and why weren't House Democrats notified about the reversal? So from I'll say this. Um, there was never a change of heart on where we were um, with uh, uh, with the SAP. The SAP, the way that it's laid out, speaks to um, the president supporting D.C. statehood. That is what that is where we were. Uh, that's what we were at the time. Wanted to make sure that we again lifted up where the president has been for the past decades, making sure that uh, D.C. Uh, you know fighting for D.C. to become a state. And we actually say in the SAP that if, uh, you, know, if, um, it, you know, if Congress wants to move forward in that way, we should p- pass H.R. 51, make, make D.C. the 51 state. Ah, there it is. SAP, as in a semi-armor piercing round? Well, probably not, but that is the first thing that this TLA made me think of a projectile that partially embeds itself into armor before detonating to fracture the armor. Because Kareen and the reporters never actually say what SAP stands for, I had to go digging for it. A German software development company. No, probably not. Okay, Google SAP Biden. Statements of administration policy. I found what they're talking about. Let's add some context to that conversation. February 6, 2023, Statement of Administration Policy. The administration opposes House Joint Resolution 24, disapproving the action of the District of Columbia Council and approving the Local Resident Voting Rights Amendment Act of 2022, and House Joint Resolution 26, disapproving the action of the District of Columbia Council and approving the Revised Criminal Code Act of 2022. For far too long, more than 700,000 residents of Washington, D.C. have been deprived of full representation in the U.S. Congress. This taxation without representation and denial of self-governance is an affront to the democratic values on which our nation was founded. House Joint Resolution 24 and Joint Resolution 26 are both clear examples of how the District of Columbia continues to be denied true self-governance and why it deserves statehood. While we work towards making Washington, D.C. the 51st state of our union, Congress should respect the District of Columbia's autonomy to govern its own affairs. So, these House resolutions, what do they do and where are they at in Congress? 
Joint Resolution 24 overrules the Local Resident Voting Rights Amendment Act of 2022, which was enacted last year by the Council of the Washington District of Columbia, and this law only affects D.C. And this bill is actually just one page long, so I can actually read it. It says that any citizen and some non-citizens who meet residency requirements can vote in local elections for mayor, members of the D.C. Council, attorney general, members of the State Board of Education, and advisory neighborhood commissioner. This does not apply to any federal elections, just local elections that affect the city itself. The local law would grant an additional 50,000 people in D.C., out of the over 700,000 people, the right to vote starting in 2024. The reason why the federal government seems to be trying to reverse this law is because it goes against the norm. Up until around the 1920s, most residents, regardless of their citizenship status, were allowed to vote until certain laws made it so that only citizens could vote. Since then, a few major cities, including New York, D.C., and several others, have toyed around with allowing residents to vote in local elections, but not federal ones. However, throughout most of the country, only citizens can vote. Should this be the case? To be honest, I don't know, and it probably isn't my place to say. I'm not an eligible voter in the local elections for the District of Columbia, and neither is Congress. Congress can do whatever they want at the federal level, but meddling with local elections seems way below their level of power. In addition, the D.C. law Congress trying to overrule passed D.C.'s council unanimously. So if the people voted for the council, and then the council decided that they want this unanimously, and those people can speak, and the council can speak for the people of D.C., and this is what the people of D.C. want. Joint Resolution 26 overrules the Revised Criminal Code Act of 2021, which, again, just affects D.C. The RCAA was actually the first update to D.C.'s criminal code since 1901 and was also approved unanimously by the D.C. Council. The main difference is the new criminal code added an increased right to a jury, shorter sentences, and smaller fines. And again, it feels like this is the D.C. Council's business, not Congress's. Despite this, most of these joint resolutions have passed in the House and are currently in the Senate, which is why the President posted his official position on the matter, that we should instead make Washington, D.C. the 51st state. My first reaction to this was, what? We can't make D.C. a state. And then I realized, I didn't know why I had that opinion. It was just my instant reaction. So I decided to look into arguments both for and against D.C. statehood to see if I supported the current bill in Congress that would do exactly that. H.R. 51, Make D.C. a State. Advocates of D.C. statehood claim that the United States is violating the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, a United Nations treaty signed by the United States in 1992. There are also several tax arguments to be made. Like I pointed out in a previous episode on FEMA, citizens of U.S. territories, including Puerto Rico, Guam, and D.C., all pay federal taxes despite not having representation in Congress. In protest of this, 
DC's DMV began issuing district license plate that have the slogan, Taxation Without Representation. There is also an argument to be made about short-term emergency response. Under the Constitution, Congress has exclusive power to oversee DC's politics and regularly overrules how DC uses its budget and responds to emergencies. The mayor of DC, Muriel Bowser, even stated that DC's statehood would have resulted in a faster response to the January 6th Capitol riot, as state governors have the power to mobilize the National Guard. But wait, under the Constitution, Congress has exclusive power over DC's politics? Does that mean a bill even has the power to make DC a state? Because the Constitution would override all other laws. And there is an article about D.C. in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, called the District Clause, which specifically outlines that Congress will have the power to exercise exclusive legislation over a district that shall become the seat of government of the United States. But that clause also specifically states that the district can't be larger than 10 square miles, and Washington, D.C. is nearly seven times that size. 68 square miles. And that area of land has nearly 700,000 people living there without representation in Congress. In addition, the clause says that Congress has the power to make this district, but isn't required to exercise that power. So why should Congress use that power, and why did I initially respond by saying D.C. can't be a state? It's all James Madison's fault. Before D.C. was founded, Madison argued in Federalist No. 43 that the nation's capital needed to be separate, not located in any of the states, to provide for its own maintenance and safety. In addition, there are concerns that by placing the nation's capital in a state, that state would then have more power over the rest of the nation than any other state. Hearing these arguments, there's definitely a bit of wiggle room between them that could lead to a proper and proposed solution. The first idea is retrocession. DC is just given back to be either given back to be either part of Maryland or Virginia, but this idea is unpopular among most DC residents. They don't want to suddenly be subject to a different state's laws. They want to govern themselves. The next idea is the one that the president supported in his statement of administration policy. Pass the law HR 51, Washington DC Admission Act. This law would make D.C. its own state, but carve out some of the land as a separate, smaller territory to actually serve as our nation's capital, still separate from any one state. This new nation's capital would contain the White House, the Capitol and Supreme Court buildings, the National Mall, and a few federal offices, in total taking up about two square miles. But I'll be fully honest, this new border looks a little messed up. It's kind of like gerrymandering. So, while it would work, I came up with a new, far more radical solution. Move the national capital, and let D.C. use the current capital buildings for their own state legislation. I think this would actually be the best option, considering that our nation now stretches all the way across the continent, instead of just making up the eastern coast when our current capital was originally established. By moving our capital to a more central position, it would symbolically show that it represents our whole nation. 
In addition, it would be easier for representatives to travel across the nation if they were located centrally. It would also ensure that our capital is more easily defended from invasion or hostile attacks. I even had a few specific areas in mind. In an exclave, or a section of disputed borders between states. Specifically, Carter Lake. Uh, to be honest, I was partial to this location, which is why I thought of it first. I just think it's a cool area, so I want to talk about its history a little. Carter Lake was first formed in 1877, when the Missouri River suddenly jumped its banks to take a shorter route. Normally, the border between Iowa and Nebraska would follow the Missouri River as it slowly eroded its banks to gradually change its path. But a flood suddenly caused it to cut its banks, which meant that Nebraska suddenly gained an extra two square miles that used to be Iowa's. Iowa, of course, wasn't happy about this, and sued to try and get the land back. The Supreme Court ruled that if the river gradually changed its path, the state border would follow it. But if it changed suddenly, the state border would stay the way that it is. There have been a few other Supreme Court suits since that solidified the boundaries between the states in this area, but essentially, it means that there's a little bit of Iowa on what is otherwise Nebraska's side of the river. Carter Lake is about two square miles, roughly the same area as the new national capital that would be established if H.R. 51 passed. It is located rather centrally to the continental U.S., in a historically disputed area between two states, meaning that the Federalist government could easily just pull a King Solomon and say, neither of you gets it. There's just one problem. Almost 4,000 people live there. Technically, the government does have the power to force them to move and then demolish the area to build a new capital, but at least 4,000 people wouldn't like that idea. Can we find a better location? I think we can. Kentucky Bend. While it is less centrally located, it is larger. Kentucky Bend is 29 square miles of land that is considered to be part of Kentucky, but isn't connected to the rest of the state. It's actually connected to land by ten it's actually connected by land to Tennessee and is otherwise surrounded by the state of Missouri. Supposedly, this area and the Mississippi River around it began to flow in this roundabout way because of an earthquake in 1812. Because of this earthquake and sketchy border drawing, Tennessee claimed that the area was actually part of its state until at least 1848. Kentucky Bend is also the site of a civil war battle, so moving the nation's capital here would show a sign of unity during a time when much of the nation feels divided over party lines. In addition, it is plenty large enough to house everything that our capital would need, with land to spare for room to grow. You don't need to worry about displacing a lot of people. While this area did used to have a bustling community, a family feud drove almost everyone away. The last store in the area closed in the 1960s. As of 2010, the, population, the area had a population of 18, and currently only has a population of 9 people. The area is mostly made of farmland, so no worries about demolishing buildings or majorly altering the terrain. It's already a flat canvas that could be used to construct an artistic, yet practical capital, containing buildings for each branch of the government, housing for government workers, embassies, and even an airstrip for longer travel. The only thing that I couldn't check before actually making this proposal is foundation integrity, but 
I'm fairly certain that it would be safe to move there. Okay, moving the whole capital is probably too bold, but many other countries have done it, even in modern history. In 1997, Kazakhstan moved its capital from its main city of Almaty to a more centrally located city, Astana. At the time, Astana was rather underdeveloped, but the president kick-started development by creating the world's largest tent, which now houses indoor shopping malls and a theater. Myanmar moved its capital city from the coastal city of Rangoon to the much more centrally located Nai Pui Ta in 2005, though the government didn't say why they did it. Bolivia even has two capitals, Sucre and La Paz, with half of its government in each since the Civil War in 1899. There have been a few proposals to reconsolidate the government in just one city, but nothing has ever gone through. I guess it's good to have a backup in case someone breaks one of the capitals. With all of this laid out, I think I can come to a complete opinion. I urge the government to pass H.R. 51 and add D.C. as the 51st state to allow 700,000 American citizens to have representation in Congress that they deserve. In addition, I propose to our government the idea of moving our country's capital or possibly building a second capital in a more central location to project a stronger sense of unity over party lines and improve our national defense. After all, self-governance and unity are some of the main principles our country is founded upon. If we deny our citizens these things, how could we ever have a brighter future? No one else is in the voice chat with me for this week, so check the description for more information, including the resources I used to build this episode, and all of the places where you can find my podcast. You can also join our Discord server to discuss these and other topics, as well as join in when these episodes are recorded live every Monday at 7pm Central Time. If you would like to support the show or spread the word, I have a merch store full of items that show off both the show's logo and icons for individual episodes. As always... Thank you for listening to this episode of Bright Future. These episodes are released every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, so I'll see you back here next week.